Hey everyone, and welcome back to another lectionary musing of the Sacred Commons podcast. We're going to talk about Jesus in the temple, his hometown church, reading from Isaiah. Sets the place off a little bit. They weren't ready for it. They weren't ready. Mm-hmm. And it just gets them into some trouble. Yeah. But you are listening to the lectionary musings of the Sacred Pom- uh, but you, more, more energy, please. <laughs> but you are listening to the lectionary musings of the Sacred Commons podcast, and we're glad you're with us. We're also going to be talking about the First Corinthians text. Yep. So today we're going to be unpacking this lectionary text from the third Sunday after Epiphany. And in this text, we find Jesus going into the synagogue, reading from the Isaiah scroll that they hand him. So let's go ahead and kick you the text just so you can have it. Luke four fourteen through 21. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So one of the things that we were talking about going into this podcast is how, uh, and, and I actually, if you listen to the podcast prior to this from the Sacred Commons, you can find more information about that text, but one of the things that was radical is what Jesus didn't read in Isaiah 61. The fact that when he got to verse 2, or what we call verse 2, he didn't continue to read the the vengeance of God, the day of vengeance in Isaiah. I think Eugene Peterson in the message translation says something along the lines of a celebration of God's vengeance upon our enemies. And when I gave the sermon for this text uh, at the Sacred Commons, one of the things that I said was, it would be like going to a Queen concert. And they get up and they start playing that amazing riff that everybody knows, you know, the feet are stomping, the hands are clapping. And you get to the hook. We will, we will. And then nobody responds, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that tension that you need that resolve. Right. And Jesus picks this messianic anointed one text where the, this agent of God, the anointed one, is going to free and, and, and get revenge. And for people living in an occupied land who have experienced oppression after oppression, exploitation after exploitation, you don't read Isaiah 61 and not include that part. But Jesus, in real time, edits the text. He edits it by being subtractive, right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't include that. And he literally cuts the verse short. 
And so before he even sits down, there is already a tension in the room because they want and they, they're waiting for him to finish it, and he doesn't. Right. Instead, he rolls it up. And that's the, you know, we were joking around. That's the equivalent of a mic drop moment. Mm -hmm. He rolls up the scroll, takes a seat, sees everyone looking at him. All eyes are fixed on him. And then he says, well, I might as well just say it. (laughs) Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, that's what I'm here to do. Yeah. It's my mission statement. It's my keynote address. Luke actually edits Mark's chronology and puts this at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and basically saying, this is what really matters. This is what Jesus was here to do. Good news to the poor. And the poor in this text is not poor in spirit. If you look at the the text, and I'm not a scholar, but I read enough of them that said this is poor, the poor. But beyond that, I think the tension of this text that we were talking about is that Jesus draws the circle wide again. And he doesn't pronounce vengeance on the enemies of Israel. And if you just keep reading, and that's next week's lectionary text, he goes on to say that there were plenty of widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years. And there were plenty of lepers in Israel when Elisha healed Naaman, the enemy, the violent enemy commander. And Jesus says there were plenty of lepers, there were plenty of widows, but what did God do? God went outside of God's own lines and he loves across the line and he he brings those people in and he heals them and he he extends his grace beyond the boundaries yeah and this really bothers people who feel like they are insiders mm-hmm. who are inside those boundaries we are the the good they are the bad yeah god is always shattering the us versus them ideology but we have to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it yeah So it sounds like this was an awkward moment Mm -hmm. in the church that day. It's a synagogue, but we're going to call it church. And Jesus was there and he's back. He's in his hometown. They're like, let's bring him on up. (laughs) Welcome to the pulpit. (laughs) And they're like, all right, here you go, Jesus. Here's a scroll. Do your thing. Yeah, here's Isaiah. And he he gets through it and they're on the edge of their seat. They're waiting for him to finish it. And instead of finishing it, he, he hands leaves, it back to him. He leaves out the vengeance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was very awkward. So what's an awkward moment in church that, yeah. that you can think of that happened in your lifetime? There were many awkward moments growing up in church. Some I was old enough to remember in detail. Some I wasn't, but I still remember the awkwardness of it all. You know, when you grow up in a Pentecostal church, you're never short of awkward moments because many people um, feeling led by the Spirit will do some crazy stuff. Uh, We had people in our church who, um, one person in particular, I remember he would come into church and his mother would say amen for him. He wouldn't say it himself, but he would get his mom to say amen real loud for him. Mm -hmm. And he would cue her in on when he wanted to say amen by tapping his Bible. Two taps (laughs) with two fingers. So a leather Bible in his lap, he would tap it. He would go, and as soon as you would hear that leather Bible go tap, tap, his mother would say, amen. (laughs) So I like that, having another person say amen for you. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it goes all the way to the scary, to the ridiculous, 
to the um, prophetic words that were a little bit off uh, to people getting called out. You know, my dad's a pastor, and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, put him on the spot or anything like that. And I say this affectionately, but he would, I would oftentimes get yelled at from the pulpit. My friends and I, if we were really being distracting, he would say. You got something you want to share with the rest of us? I mean, and to have that pressure in the middle of, I never saw one person say, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, to have that pressure put on you. One time we were in church and sermons going on and there's a guy who, uh, um, his phone rings. He had like one of these flip phones and his phone was so loud and it rings right in the middle of service. You know, like really, really loud. And instead of, just I think quiet. phones ringing in service are awkward. Oh yeah, that's always awkward. Well, what makes phones ringing in service? <laughs> it's worse when, when they answer. <laughs> when you have when you have people who don't answer and just let it ring yeah. and ring, instead of silencing their phone, some elderly folks don't know how, oh, yeah. uh, it, or they just don't realize it's their phone and so it goes off. But this guy did not silence his phone, and so he instead gets really pissed that his phone rings, and in the middle of the sermon in front of everybody, really loud. He's sitting in the second row, really loud. He goes, <laughs> and <laughs> Can you say that on our podcast? I'll, I'll bleep it. <laughs> it, made, it made the whole church. This was during the sermon by this point, right? During the sermon. It made the whole church just freeze over. <laughs> then the sermon began back up again. It happened literally about five minutes later, and with the same intensity, <laughs> once more, this dude goes, <laughs> I mean, in terms of awkwardness, the F-bomb just took it up to about a 10. If it was at a 5, the F-bomb took it up to a 10. Now, there's other stories that that I could offer, but... That one, I think, was quite amazing. You grow up in church, you see a lot of crazy stuff. I saw a prophetic word one time that described the church as a boat with a hole in it. And um, and it was interrupted. It was basically <laughs> like, nope, nope, nope. nope, nope. <laughs> not, not <laughs> Give me the mic back. <laughs> Someone grabbed the mic off of him. I've seen a lot of great great ones in, in online. Um, online. Yeah. yeah. One guy was talking about, man, I was in the world. And he's talking, he's like, and I was a hoe. And he began to describe how he, ho- is the term hoed himself? Or I don't know. I don't know. But he began to describe in detail the, the acts that he would oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, church. Church is fun. When it's done right, it's fun. One of mine was, one of my favorites is, um, yeah, you know how you sometimes will go around and it'll be like more of a small group setting and yeah. you'll do praise reports. And her praise report was that, oh, all, man, yes. that all, all she got was syphilis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was there. Oh. It was awkward because we're leading the group and like you and don't want to laugh at that. You don't and, laugh at that. Right? So you're like. Amen. It That's, wasn't, and you know what's crazy? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a small group. 
it was it was we're not talking like five people who are around each other all the time yeah confessing yeah. to each other at private like this is not that there wasn't five there was like 15 people there. it was like a, it was like a midweek thing so it wasn't the full congregation but it was definitely people who didn't really know each other all and, that and well. she clearly wanted everybody to know this mm-hmm. she when, also had a prayer request another night that she injured threw, her hip mm-hmm. she injured herself in a twerking contest so competition yeah mm-hmm. so. so we prayed for her god to pray that you'd be with sister so-and-so yeah she injured her hip and t- <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh man i actually think the twerking injury was probably a little bit more awkward um because of yeah just a lot of things involved there. But yeah, praying for her twerking injury, that might be, you know what now that I'm thinking about? That might be my favorite mm-hmm. church story of all time. Mm-hmm. And we didn't lay hands. We didn't We didn't have laying on of hands for the twerking injury. We just prayed for her. Yeah. We might have stretched our hands out and we pray for her twerking injury. God, restore, heal, so that she can once again twerk with. In competition. Twerk with. It was a competition. Yeah, right. So, I've never been to one. I don't think I want to go to one. I'm good. <laughs> I haven't participated. Mm-mm. I'm good. So, anyways, how did we get from uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to twerking competition? Awkward moment. Hey, listen. Let's get back to uh, <laughs> awkward moments. So they hand Jesus the Isaiah scroll, and they don't even know what they're in for. He reads this messianic text, this text about the anointed one who's going to break yokes. Uh, free people who are held in bondage, bring sight to people who have no sight, uh, bring, let the oppressed go free, freedom to the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus said, that's what I'm here for, that's what I'm, that's what I'm about, this is what I'm here to do. And he left out vengeance upon Israel's enemies. When he did that, at first the people in the temple, in the synagogue, were okay. The, the gracious words, N.T. Wright actually says that the, the gracious words, the, the amazement of the grace was not necessarily that they were impressed with his speech, but they were impressed with how it was, it was kind of moving them how he was taking uh, this expression of favor and extending it graciously beyond Israel, right? Like crossing over those lines, reaching across the lines and extending grace to the other, destroying the us versus them uh, dichotomy. And then once they realized what he was saying, then they started to get a little bit mad. And that's when he points out that Elisha and Elijah both went and healed and ministered to pagan people outside of the line, and this is when he got into to trouble, and they tried to throw him over a cliff. And that's next week, though, so we can't really go there. But what, what we want to do is now read the text from Corinthians and kind of dance with it a little bit so that we can maybe overlap this idea of Jesus working across those lines and graciously, by the power of the Holy Spirit, leading us out of an us versus them understanding uh, or or worldview. I think that part of the mic drop moment is Jesus was pointing out a group of people that to him mattered. The poor, mm-hmm. the those 
basically forgotten by society or cast to the side mm-hmm. or for whatever reason or in dire situation, those people mattered to Jesus. And he was picking out these people that otherwise would have been disregarded and said, this is who I'm here for. Although he's here for everyone and he loves us all, he was specifically saying, this is my crew. That's who I'm going to roll with. Mm-hmm. And a preferential option for the poor. Yeah. In the gospel, you see it through and through, yeah. through and through. And those are the people that sometimes are seen as, to society, sometimes it comes across as they're seen as less valuable or that they're not as, um, they're not contributing as much. And Oh, yeah. Human resources, right? Social Darwinism, this idea that, People are only worth what they can contribute. Mm-hmm. And of course, the opposite of that is the Imago Dei. Every, everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone has worth intrinsically woven into their being because mm-hmm. they were made in God's image. doesn't matter if you can contribute or not. Right. But unfortunately, a lot of times we only ascribe value based upon what people can contribute financially or with their abilities or with their talents, or with their resources, and we reduce everybody to human resources. And we were trying to find it. I wasn't sure if it was Eugene Peterson who said that you should never use that term. Right. Humans are not resources. They're not fuel. They're not fodder. They're not logs to be burned into the, the engine of industry. Yeah. I think in that, Jesus was saying to those people, you are loved and you matter. Yeah. And I think that leads us to the First Corinthians text. First Corinthians twelve, twelve through thirty one. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were the eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas, our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another." If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts. Mm. There's so much in that text that I think comes alive when you read it. But one of the things that we really wanted to lean into was this idea of unity, not necessarily uniformity, but unity of the body. And of course, you know, you can take that in any direction. Paul's talking about the lesser members versus the greater ones, and really it's the lesser ones that we treasure more. Um, Not any one of them is dispensable. Everyone is indispensable. Yeah. The part that really kind of jumped out at me is where he said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So he creates this metaphor of the body and he says you know many parts in this many functions many parts but every single one of them needs the other yeah and we need that kind of unity and i think what kind of hurts my heart a little bit is that when you try to encourage unity within the church oof. yeah good luck it's hard to do within one local it's hard to do within one local church body let alone when you talk about the universal church yeah. and all the denominations out there Protestant and Catholic and there's just so many facets to this it can be applied on a small scale it can be applied on a macro scale um, but it's important that everybody is seen as an important part a valuable part and the part that jumped out at, to me was the was the verse that said, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes those who may seem to be weak or know that they are the weaker members, like they need to be reminded, we need you, you are not, in, you are not dispensable. Mm-hmm. So bridging this idea of every member needed Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in the fractionalized world of Christianity that we live in, where, you know, there's, I don't know how many thousands of denominations, they argue about that. You hear people throw numbers out, 30,000. We're not too sure. 40-something, I don't, I don't know. There's a lot. Mm-hmm. And we also have to recognize that for the most part, denominationalism is uniquely a Protestant phenomenon. The reformers, actually, I don't, I don't even think they saw this happening i think you lose people when you start to suggest that we come together like for example look what happened to jesus Mm -hmm. he draws a circle wide and they kick him out and they don't just kick him out they try to throw him over the cliff yeah he draws a circle wide saying that god has always been crossing god's own lines Mm -hmm. going and reaching out to the pagan widow to the pagan violent commander like of name it. He's saying God has always been doing this work Mm -hmm. and there have always been prophets that are willing to come out and say that God's going to do something awesome like set the captives free and and bring sight to the blind and it's not just for us insiders. 
Because I'm not going to read that part of Isaiah that says, and the destruction of Israel's enemies. He draws a circle wide. And there's, a, there's an exodus there, but it's not necessarily that he wanted them to, he wanted them to kick him out. They forced him out. When we talk about unity and reaching out across the line, which is what I think we see Jesus do here, Jesus is preemptively telling them, my ministry is going to go beyond Israel. It's going to, it's going to originate from, from this place, mm-hmm. but it's going to be extended to people that no one would expect in ways that no one would expect. Right. And be ready for that. And of course, they, they weren't. Yeah. Because they, at that point, they didn't know he was going to be talking to prostitutes and hanging out with tax collectors and Gentiles. It mm-hmm. was not, it was not that yet. Not yet. Paul comes along, deals with division in, in the Corinthian church and says, hey, be unified, mm-hmm. be united. You don't have to be the same, but you definitely can't say I have no need of you yeah. to the other. You don't have to be the same, but you have to recognize the value in the other. See the beauty in the other. Mm-hmm. See the need mm-hmm. for the other. And and recognize that we were all made to drink of one spirit and that the foot needs the eye, needs the leg, needs the ear. You all need each other. Right. Rachel Held Evans, in her book, Searching for Sunday, she has this one small chapter called, I think it's called One Big Trembling Giant or a Big mm-hmm. Trembling Giant or yeah. something like that. And it's about the, am I saying this right? The Pondo Tree, Pando Tree in Utah. It looks like a forest, but in reality, it's a single tree with a unified root system. And it looks like there's thousands of trees, but if you could go underneath the surface, all of those trees are really just one big tree that share a common, massive underground root system. I'm going to read this part because I thought this was really good. She goes on to write, At last count, there are nearly as many denominations in Christianity as there are trees growing from Pando. Each one looks different, beautiful, and broken in its own way. But we all share the same DNA. We tend to lament the seemingly endless parceling of Christianity, which, let's face it, can indeed get out of hand. But I'm not convinced the pursuit of greater unity means rejecting denominationalism altogether. A worldwide movement of more than 2 billion people reaching every continent and spanning thousands of cultures for over 2,000 years can't expect homogeneity. And the notion that a single tradition owns the lockbox on truth is laughable, especially when the truth we're talking is God. We might instead think of the various Christian traditions as different facets of a diamond refracting the same light, or as workers tending to a shared garden but with unique tasks. Or as a single body, here, here's that text, right, from Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Or as a single body made of many interconnected parts, 1 Corinthians 12. Our differences can be cause for celebration when we believe the same spirit that sings through a pipe organ can sing through an electric guitar, a Gregorian chant, or a gospel choir, though perhaps not at the same time. And that we each hear the spirit as a different pitch. Jesus said, I like this part, Jesus said his father's house has many rooms. In this metaphor, I like to imagine the Presbyterians hanging out in the library, the Baptists running the kitchen, 
the Anglicans setting the table, the Anabaptists washing feet with the hose in the backyard, the Lutherans making liturgy for the laundry, the Methodists stoking the fire in the hearth, the Catholics keeping the family history, the Pentecostals throwing open all the windows and doors to let more people in. This is not to minimize the significance of our differences, of course. There are denominations of which I cannot in good conscience be a part because they ban women from the pulpit and gay and lesbian people from the table. Historically, churches have split over important issues like corruption, slavery, and civil rights. Doctrinal disputes may, in some cases, be negligible, but in others, worth contesting. We're a family, after all, and so we fight like one. I like that line. Perhaps when the master cobbler makes all things new, every good gift from each tradition will be melded together into one, all the impurities refined away. But in the meantime, our various traditions seem a sweet and necessary grace. I love her language. Mm -hmm. And when we check our pride long enough to pay attention to the presence of the Spirit gusting across the globe, we catch glimpses of a God who defies our categories and expectations. A God who both inhabits and transcends our worship, art, theology, culture, experiences, and ideas. I'm going to skip around a little bit. She goes on to say, as my friend Ed puts it, when you join a church, you're just picking which hot mess is your favorite. She says, that sounds about right to me. Our differences matter, but ultimately, the boundaries we build between one another are but accidental fences in the endless continuum of God's grace. We are both a forest and a single tree, one big trembling giant, stirred by an invisible breeze. Boom. That's my favorite line, that last, those last two sentences. Mm-hmm. So good. I might have to get a poster of a, a pando tree. Just to like, it's a good idea. I'm sure at. you can find many. <laughs> Just because of what it, it represents. represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So traditionally, when you talk about the unity of the church and when you talk about, you know, seeing the need for all the members of the body, and of course you could do this in many ways. You could see the need for all the members in the body locally within your own local church. You need young, you need old, you need all the different offices of the church, as mentioned in in the text. You need people from all different walks of life. You could do it that way. But I also think that you need to expand that idea out into the full body of Christ, right? Especially for people like us who come from the Protestant background. And we need to look at all of these different denominations with the distinction that she was talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Not, Not saying that we just wash it all out, but instead recognize that each member of the body is beautiful, has something to offer, has mm-hmm. something to give, has something to bring. Mm-hmm. We have to learn from each other, try to understand one another, and beware, beware, beware of those who try to s- stir in us versus them dichotomy. They wouldn't have liked Jesus too much. Yeah. Because he's getting up there, and when it gets to the us versus them part of Isaiah 61, he edits that part out. Mm -hmm. And of course, we just see him constantly, frequently crossing over the line, going to the the people who you just weren't supposed to be around, Mm -hmm. loving them, bringing them in. Mm -hmm. Now, what's crazy to me 
is that you got a lot of Christians who are willing to do that with with non Christians, but it's a very selfish motivation. They they are willing to go out and and reach people who are not like them, but only so that they'll convert and be like them. Yeah. What they're not willing to do is go across the aisle, cross the street to the other church, and actually extend Christian love. And here's where this, that's a problem, right? And this is, I'm going to read you a really, this is one of my favorite quotes from Dallas Willard. He says, speaking about ecumenism, ecumenism is just the desire for the church to be one. It's the belief that when Jesus prayed in John 17 for all believers, starting at verse 20, he prays for all believers that they may be one, just as the Father is in him, he's in the Father, so that we could be brought, literally to quote Jesus, brought to complete unity. This is at the heart of ecumenism. It's it's the desire for the church to be one and the working within the different members of the church towards that oneness. So Willard, Dallas Willard, author, teacher, had this to say about ecumenism. He said, I think one of the reasons I am hopeful about what is now happening is that denominationalism generally has receded into the background of the spiritual life. He goes on to say, We can begin to, in practice, assume that Christ and his friends, the Father and the Spirit, are building the church. We can begin to recognize it and speak and communicate and love across the lines. And that's, maybe that's what we should call this podcast. Love across the lines. Love across the lines. And contribute, he goes on, and contribute to the success in God of others who are different from us. Paul says there's no Greek, no Jew, no circumcision, no uncircumcision, no barbarians, no Scythians, but Christ is all and in all. That's the reality. We just begin to assume it and act on it. I believe that God is breaking it down. I think what is appearing in our day is a growing realization that what really matters is not the divisions, but what we have in common. True ecumenism is obedience to Christ. I'm going to say that Mm -hmm. again. True ecumenism is obedience to Christ. Discipleship leads to that. Christ's body comes together not by administrative actions, but by the actions of individuals who begin to step across the line, there it is again, and invest in the unity of the body. End quote. Mm -hmm. The Dallas Willard. I think we need to be looking for opportunities to do that as well. What are things going on in our world, in our communities, in our um, fellowship mm-hmm. with other Christians? How are we building bridges between each other and seeing the other part of the body as valuable and as necessary and as needed and um, as indispensable? Indispensable. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other line too, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If yeah. one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Are we suffering with each other? Are we rejoicing with each other? That's good. I agree with Willard. It's going to begin not necessarily through administrative actions but by the actions of individuals who begin to step across the line and invest personally in the unity of the body. And this is where I am so so encouraged 
because it seems like God has given us grace to see this sort of thing happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, ex- I hate this word. I'm excited about it. Yeah. I'm hopeful. Can can we end with a quote? Sure. So we're going to end today with a quote from Dr. Cheryl Bridges Johns. And this is one of your favorite quotes, I know. Not only one of my favorite <laughs> quotes, but I love her altogether. She's all. So this is a quote from Dr. Cheryl Bridges Johns. She says, I long for a movement to emerge. Wesleyan Pentecostal Sacramental. I long to dance in sacred spaces surrounded by people whose hearts have been set aflame with holy love. I long to hear the poor sing their own magnificence, a place where water, oil, bread, wine, and fire commingle. I love that. I love her. Where water, oil, bread, wine, and fire commingle. Come on. I long for that movement to emerge, too. I long for that movement third. Could it be Convergence? I don't know. I don't know what. I don't, I don't know. know if you should call it that. I, I don't, don't know. know if they're calling this convergence. I don't know. Ecumenism. Uh, let's just call it. Let's just call it the work of the spirit. <gasps> the body with many members. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> that works. That we. Yeah, that works really well. The body with many members. Yeah. This is the Sacred Commons podcast. Thanks for listening. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Sacred Commons Podcast. If you want to help support us in this work, please visit our website. If anything, just check it out. But if you feel inclined to give, you can do so by visiting thesacredcommons.com. Click on Give. Every single cent has an immediate impact and helps us continue to do this. We're going to finish this week's lectionary musing with the prayer of St. Francis. How about we do that one? I think that would be good. I think so. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen.